Hello and welcome to another episode of the Architects Are From Mars and Builders Are From Venus podcast, brought to you by Ruby Sketch. Let's get started. Okay, thanks for joining us for episode one. My name is Drew Povey and I'm your host. Now, the reason we're doing these podcasts is because we are passionate about the design and construction industry. Many companies say they are, but we actually mean it. And we believe that if everyone in the industry better understands each other, we'll communicate better, leading to stronger relationships, more sustainable design and construction, and more profitable businesses. So in this series, we'll be talking to architects, designers, builders, estimators, and product manufacturers. We want to discuss the issues that are costing each profession time and money, as well as taking a look at what we could be doing to create more successful businesses. Before we start, we'd like to give special thanks to our platinum sponsor, Brickworks Building Products. Brickworks are one of Australia's largest building product companies with a product range that includes bricks, pavers, stone, masonry blocks, precast concrete panels, and the list goes on. They lead through style and innovation, creating beautiful products that last forever. So this is our first guest speaker webcast for 2018, and we're going to be kicking them off by speaking to RubySketch's very own Andrew Dwight. Andrew is the owner and founder of RubySketch, but is also a designer and builder with over 29 years in the industry. So we're going to be asking him to put his builder's hat back on and talk about the common issues that affect builders and designers and that keep them up at night. So, Andrew, thanks for coming along today and agreeing to kick off this series. No worries. Thanks, Drew. Welcome, everybody. All right. So I'm going to jump right in. You've experienced issues, and that's what led you to create RubySketch and the tech company to try and solve those issues. And I think our listeners would love to know just a little bit more about you, your experience in the building industry. So let's start there. Okay, so look, essentially I started as an apprentice for uh, one of the large construction companies in Sydney. Uh, I was a carpenter and joiner. Uh, I was a tradesman by the age of 19, essentially. Uh, I got into the industry early and it was a good start. I guess having a construction background before you get into design was helpful uh, in many ways because I saw a lot of issues that, that were passed down, being a downstream contractor. Uh, and, yeah, it enabled me to get a holistic view of the industry uh, from the base up, which is kind of beneficial, uh, not just for me, but for everyone, I guess, who uses the, the products that we create now. Uh, they're all backed with you know knowledge from, from industry participants instead of, I guess, computer uh, scientists that are trying to guess what everyone else is needing. I started to draw in 2D, pretty old school type of stuff. <clears throat> and uh, I had plus customers that looked at me with blank faces um, so, yeah, that's how I got there. So, tell us a little bit, though. So, were you mainly in residential construction or uh, did you branch out into some, com- some commercial? What kind of uh, builders did you work for? Look, predominantly everything that I did uh, was residential. I did uh, was construction manager for a, a semi-commercial business there for a while, but, you know, it's horses for courses. And, uh, you know, I've I got a passion for the residential industry. It's got a great job satisfaction, especially when designing and building, you get to see it at design stage, but you also get to see it finished. So, yeah, residential would be, you know, out of all of the years, I probably only spent one year <clears throat> in the commercial side of, of the industry. And when you started building, what were the main issues that, that you faced or that were the main cause of frustration for you? 
Okay, so I, I've been building for probably 14 years now as a licensed builder. Uh, yeah, when I was supervising uh, for for a construction company, frustration, a lot, some of it came down to, you know, getting different variations of plans to different subcontractors was, was always an issue. Um, if we're dealing with, if we're talking about dealing with individual clients, I think that interpretation of plan uh, to all of us, and I guess most people that are, are listening in today, uh, over several years, we gained an understanding of how to read a, a 2D uh, plan and then create a 3D image of that plan in our heads. And the understanding is quite, uh, I guess, simple after a certain amount of time. Whereas customers, we have to realise that they're not in our industry. They haven't had our uh, education and experience with plans. And and I guess a lot of them take our word for what it is that we're showing them because, you know, I've had customers that didn't realise which way the road was uh, and, and so on. So, yeah, I think one of the main things uh, for industry is that um, understanding that customers don't understand uh, means that they're relying on trust. And when they're relying on trust and they've got a different vision in their head uh, to what we are actually, what we've actually done on paper, that then creates uh, sometimes tension, sometimes cost overruns, and sometimes issues. Uh, and cost overruns is really the one that that strikes a nerve and, and where industry falls down very, very quickly. And you know what? The way I see it is, is actually what we deliver on a set of plans is communication and it's a form of communication that we required before we had, you know, 3D uh, CAD softwares. Uh, so, you know, whether I used to draw by hand and, um, and that was the only form of communication we had. And I still, from my understanding, is that 60 plus percent of designers and Architects and builders still are using just 2D CAD. Uh, that doesn't sit that well with me. And I guess as we get sort of further down the story, we'll, we'll try and uncover, you know, why we went the way we did. Yeah. Look, I, I, from, from my point of view, from the, the discussions that I have with, uh, architects, designers and builders, that is one of the main issues is that, you know, you you think the customer understands exactly what they're getting and, and, they give you every impression that they understand it. And then when it's actually built, they walk around the site and say, I didn't know it was going to look like that. That's ugly. And then from a marketing and sales point of view, that there goes your relationship with that customer. You're never going to be able to repair it. And therefore, you know, it's going to be difficult for them to give a referral. So I think I 100% agree with that. Yeah, I think a lot of them are embarrassed to say that they don't understand. You know, I guess all of us have probably been guilty of it in some time in our life where, you know, someone explains something to you and you feel embarrassed to say, well, I don't get it. And uh, uh, so the best way that I believe is to communicate in, in a way that it's kind of almost impossible to get it. Uh, even, you know, if you've got a customer that doesn't even understand 3D, sometimes even just building a, a model or a little vignette uh, out of cardboard can sometimes help but whatever we've got to do to communicate properly initially is time and money well spent in the future of the project yeah i totally agree so like that probably lends me to ask you about the what you obviously went and started a design build firm uh, after you left the building companies that you're working for so what kind of issues did you face as a design build firm so on top of the building issues now looking at the design problems well, there's a couple of things. There's regulatory authorities, understanding all the rules and regulations and understanding uh, in in my 
jurisdiction or, or area. You know, it's called a development control plan and understanding the rules of council, then understanding what you can and can't do, uh, understanding, you know, what you can get around, uh, you know, pressing outside of what the council restrictions is, is one thing. And uh, I struggled with that uh, uh, personally when I started designing. Uh, I lodged my first set of plans, which was pretty rudimentary. Uh, I got knocked back three or four times. I got frustrated with council, yet the frustration was due to my lack of knowledge of how to lodge a development application uh, so I joined uh, the Building Designers Association. Uh, from the builder's perspective, it was a good move uh, because all of the guys there were predominantly all designers or architects. So I got to learn a lot from them, and I, I do recommend that, that people do get involved in local associations because it's a it's a good way to be part of a team. And uh, But fortunately for me, I was getting a lot of work because I was designing at the same time as I was building. So therefore, I, I guess I had an extra sales point there uh, and I know that a lot of our customers are predominantly uh, architects and predominantly builders. Um, yeah, uh, there, there is advantages to design build firms and, and really the main one is that the client only deals with one particular company and there's no uh, architect versus builder issues down the track. And I guess that's what we're about to talk about is, you know, where did I find issues and why did I get into design? Look, I do enjoy design, uh, but it's not predominantly the reason why I got into design. I actually, you know, had an arch- had an architect that was doing some work for us, and you know, it was a communication issue between him and I. Uh, you know, he was trying to do lovely things, were good on his portfolio, yet I had clients that had budgets, and uh, and you know, I, I guess, and and it's probably a question that I respond to you with, Drew, is that. When he was uh, went through his tuition, I don't believe that he was taught buildability, and obviously that was something that I was taught because I went through it firsthand. And understanding the cost of a, a design uh, early in the piece is paramount to being able to deliver something. I, I find it frustrating just in the waste side alone that, that we would go and, or an architect would go and design something and you have to give some type of cost indication and you need to be very careful. Uh, a lot of people just go, well, traditionally, if you're going to build, say, a lower-end type of house, it might be X amount per square metre, and if it's going to be, say, a medium-quality build, it could be Y, and if it was going to be a high-end house, it could be Z. And uh, that's flawed, uh, and, I've, and I've done a few exercises just showing how a simple rectangular house uh, can be the same cost as a house that's, that's you know, 60% smaller than it, uh, just due to complexity. And uh, so I guess that's uh, uh, issues that, that, that I guess a lot of designers and architects have, and it's the reason why we associated products with Plusbag, uh is so that, you know, you can get a, a feasibility study so that you're closer to the mark. And that way, you know, before you get into a, a set of development application plans, it's good to have a good understanding or a reasonable understanding of costs. Uh, once you've got an understanding of costs, you can keep the client on track and make amendments before, you know, you spent a lot of their money and budget on design. When you were at uni, yeah, look, did they yeah. actually teach you anything about, you know, the cost of a project or, you know, how much time did, did university spend on that? Uh, look, not a lot. There, there is obviously some tuition. It's something that you learn when you start your career and, and obviously join um, a practice. But the, the thing that plagues our industry 
is the fact that we are relying on square meters or square feet. And I totally agree with you. I think that with everyone that we speak to, uh, all of our customers or prospective customers, um, the big issue is that there are so many designs that just sit on the shelf. They look pretty, but they don't get built. And it's because they haven't met the customer's budget. And we all know that there's a few things that can play into that. You can have an unrealistic customer who's unwilling to uh, take on board what you're telling uh, them about materiality and different things that you should be using and, and they refuse and so that blows the budget. But as an architect and a designer, I think it's paramount that we get away from square meter and square feet. And I also yep. think that you don't need to ever give the assurance that you uh, can estimate or that you can 100% tell them to the dollar what that project is going to cost. Great. But by internally being able to do it and to, to design to budget, it's just another feather in your cap. It's going to make sure that you've got way less chance that when you do go to another stakeholder like a quantity surveyor or whoever you're using, by the time you go to them to do the official costing, you're going to be pretty damn close. And, and I think that's the big point of difference. Yeah, and I guess it helps you hone your skills. If you've sort of got an understanding and you send it to a, a QS and, and it returns, you can see where, where you're at. Uh, and I guess it gives you a certain amount of, well, confidence in, in, in your own ability. Uh, it is a really good skill for, for an architect or specific designer to, to have an understanding of cost. And, uh, and obviously everything comes with experience, but it's nice to see young people get into the industry and succeed without having to do 10 years in an architectural office. Uh, and unfortunately, sometimes sweeping the floors or just creating components. So, yeah, I'd like to see young people. They got faster, smarter brains than than, than I do. I believe. Uh, I like to see them get into the industry earlier, and I do hope that what we create, you know, helps them achieve that goal. Yeah, and so this conversation takes me actually onto the next question, and that is that at Ruby Sketch we place a huge amounts of importance to have the design and construction, uh, construction industry using uh, real building products in the 3D model from the very beginning of the design and also obviously in the estimate. So perhaps you could tell our listeners why we place so much importance on that. Well, I, I think that, well, I, I guess a classic example of a common problem that I came across uh, was that uh, in Australia, once we went from metric to imperial, uh, a four-inch wall was basically 100 millimetres. Uh, and then we went into sort of a different way of producing timber and, and basically that 100 millimetres went down to 90 millimetres. And sort of you go, well, why do I say that? Well, I found that I was getting a lot of plans that all the internal walls and external walls were drawn at 100 millimetres. However, it was impossible to buy that size. Uh, so what we did with Classback is, you can select 100 millimetres timber, but it would draw it at 90 because that's all we can buy. It's actually nominal versus actual size. And it doesn't sound like much, you know, what's 10 millimetres in a wall. Well, when you're on site and you're actually spacing out a set of uh, frames or building a home, uh, that 10 millimetres means a lot. Uh, it's difficult to explain, but down one side of the house, you might have five walls, and the other side, you might have two internal walls. If you start measuring from the front, at 100 mil spacing, then you start measuring from the back on the other side, you can be out 70 mil in a project over 10 metres. Uh, so getting back to the point was that if we actually add real products by real manufacturers, uh, we don't have an issue where we're getting plans that are delivering to site that are problematic and cause issues. Uh, 
Bricks is another good example. Uh, because we geolocate products uh, in Western Australia, the the standard size for a brick is 90 millimetres wide. However, in the eastern states, 110 millimetres wide. So selecting an actual product uh, will ensure that you don't have to have a size issue when you draw your plan. So um, I know that you and I have had this conversation before, Drew, and you know, when I actually started design, I'll actually start. Sometimes I might draw something down on, on a piece of paper and maybe more so when I'm doing an existing, say, a renovation on a house or an extension. But when I'm actually designing a new house from scratch, I actually don't use a pen and paper. I don't use CAD. I actually start it uh, in 3D. And I actually start it with, because I have an understanding of, of what the client might want and, and an indication of budget, I would usually design according to that budget. So, you know, if it's a lower-end budget, I would probably start with brick veneer because I know it's efficient to build. It's definitely not the best method of construction, as we all know. However, I would start to design with brick veneer and I would actually choose the timber size or the frame sizes and the, the external brick size and the cavity size. Uh, yet I understand a lot of people just like to use one solid wall and start to mass. Uh, and, and that can be done in, in plastic as well. However, I don't 100% agree and I know that you've got a different opinion on that. But um, yeah, I like to, to design with real products from the very, very start. It allows me to get an indication of costs allows me to understand how products are interacting with each other. It allows me to understand how the structure is going to be associated with that. So you know, I guess that's a reason why, you know, I'm a big believer of starting with something that can be purchased instead of actually starting with something that's generic and then specifying something later because your drawings could be out according to what the colour consultant chose or, you know, uh, there's a lot of disconnect in that. And, and I believe if we start with what we can buy, we finish with what we can purchase and install. That's the reason, basically. Yeah, and look, I actually agree with you. I just think that uh, it does make sense that some architects and designers like to start with a solid wall and have no idea of materiality. But for me and and for a lot of the architects and designers that that I speak with, it is you already do have an understanding because you've created your customer brief. The the customer has kind of given you an understanding of the style and, and what they're wanting to achieve with their dream home. So... As an architect or a designer, for me anyway, personally, I would be starting to say, well, what do I want, what do I want to use? What is the materiality? Do I want to use rammed earth and, or do I want to try something alternative and do I want to try using um, straw bale or am I going to use a sexy, beautiful, reclaimed brick? Because for me, that's part of the sales process. So I'm, I'm getting caught up in materials and obviously I don't want to just use generic ones because – that is the problem, exactly what you said before. The disconnect between using generic products versus an actual product, is it takes out the error. There's no chance for that. And obviously, it means that from start to finish, you can still change your, your mind along the way, but it, it means that you're never getting to a point where you pass it over to a builder or, or to your uh, quantity surveyor or whoever else may, it may be, and no one understands what you're trying to achieve because you're just saying, oh, it's a generic brick. And if you're using a real brick, it's a sales strategy because you're sitting there in front of your customer and saying, this is the Brickworks Austral brick that I want to use. And this is why I think you should, you'll love it and it will work for your project rather than just showing a, like a brick hatch pattern, you know? 
Yeah. Look, uh, look, and I don't mean to be flippant about saying that because, you know what, it's a majority of architects and designers that I spoke to that do like to do that. And and I guess that's the benefit of being inside of SketchUp, Drew, is that SketchUp is so free-form, you can mock as much as you want to and look at all aspects of the building very, very quickly. And, and where SketchUp sort of fell down in many instances is it's very difficult to get that mock-up into a set of construction drawings. I think that having the, the flexibility of SketchUp uh, with the the parametric ability of PlusSpec makes it a really good package to be able to get an all-rounder without leaving and going from CAD to Revit or ArchiCAD and back to a rendering program and so on. I think that having everything in one spot is, is probably one of our real strengths uh, and, and I think what a lot of our users are enjoying. Yeah, most definitely. And then, so this conversation that we're having here about uh, building products and using that also goes into kind of another strain of thought and that is we often also hear from architects and designers that they're creating their, the custom homes. And then obviously they get to a point where uh, they have the builder that's going to tender or to quote uh, on the custom design. One of the things I hear all over the world, because we don't deal with, you know, just Anzac or whatever, we're in North America, in Europe, all through Australia, New Zealand, et cetera. And it's, it's crazy how often you hear it. There's no, it seems to me that all of the issues that we experience in an industry is global. There's very little difference between region to region, country to country. But one of the big mm-hmm. things that we hear is that, yeah, I've got my custom design. I now go to a builder and the builder, the price is ridiculous. So as a builder, maybe you can come back and have a bit of a chat about that and and discuss, you know, is this a thing that's happening? Are builders over-quoting on an architectural or custom design? Uh, or what's going think, on to, yeah. to actually cause this? I'm not sure whether it's evident. Uh, I know it's understood in, in certain circles. The thing is, is that especially when it comes to a custom home, uh, sending a plan to a builder uh, is relied on several things. Number one, how much work does the builder have on and does he really need the job? I think you'll find you're going to get a sharper, keener price from the builder who actually needs the work. However, the busy builders are usually the better builders, and the better a builder gets, uh, obviously, the higher their price goes. Uh, we all pay for quality. Um, I, I think that where the surprise factor comes in is, well, it's two-pronged, is that, number one, the designer might not understand the buildability of the project. And a good example of that might be, well, being a carpenter, I understand that a floor joist will span six metres without an internal support. And just making a two wall 6.1 metres apart means that we now need steel columns, steel beams and engineering. You know, it's very easy for that to be $5,000 minimum and more likely 10. Uh, so you can see $10,000 in for 100 millimetres or four inches extra internal space. So buildability is one thing. However, I don't think that that's the main problem. I think that the main reason being is that Builders don't get time to quote or don't get paid to quote. Uh, And that's an issue because what happens, he goes to work or she goes to work and and runs their crew, gets the jobs that they have running now, and then comes home after a day, and and obviously I'm talking about smaller building companies here. Then they go home and, and, uh, and try and get a quote together. Now, from experience, when I'm quoting a project, I, I don't. I never work on square meter rate. I, I know how flawed it can be, and I know it gives me the capacity to lose a lot of money. Uh, so I'll actually go through and measure up. You know how much plating's on the walls, how many windows. Um, 
And even from experience, the things I've built in the past, usually I have a, a gut feeling indication as soon as I look at a set of plans, or within 15 to 20 minutes. However, it's based on very little other than previous experience. Once a builder actually gets in and does a quote, they'll add a, a contingency because things are unknown. And that could be unknown because they're either too lazy to read all the plans, which I've been guilty of. We're not, remember, we're not getting paid to do this. Or two, um, they, they add contingency to the quote because, you know, there's uncertainty about it, especially in a, in a custom build or, or and a lot of quotes uh, that, that I had to do came without engineering, which meant that, you know, in some projects, it's quite easy for the engineering. I had, I had a project that I quoted for an architect friend of mine and, uh, and the quote come back in once we got the engineering, which was $300,000 for the steelwork alone. I had no idea what it was going to take other than me drawing it up myself and going, well, if I had to take a stab in the dark, I believe that, you know, and, and even my own initial engineering, which I'm not an engineer, cost, you know, was $150,000. Uh, that house is a beautiful house and I would have loved to have seen it built. You know, the customer spent over $60,000 to get it designed uh, through a friend of mine and basically it all got thrown in the bin. My time got wasted the 40 hours I spent quoting it. Uh, the architect obviously got paid for it, but the client lost the cash at the end of the day and ended up, you know, going back to a, a more simple project. And that's all due to the fact that Nobody was actually communicating at the time of design. And uh, I've spoken about it before. I, I believe that integrated project delivery, and I'll explain that a little bit more, um, is a real key. So an architect might come with a set of fees to a client. However, included in those fees might be, you know, two hours consultation with a builder and two hours consultation with an architect or with an engineer uh, before the project actually gets presented to the client and therefore amendments are made. It still works out cheaper in the long run because if the client wastes 100% of the, the value of the design time, it, it's dead loss. Uh, and there's an advantage is the builders have knowledge that architects and designers don't have. Engineers have knowledge that neither of those two have. And working together and integrating the project delivery uh, basically means that we've got less disconnect down the track and, and the likelihood of a project not going ahead or the likelihood of the client spending money that is wasted uh, is less. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a solution to the industry and a solution that, that I believe can be done with a 3D model. It can be communicated with uh, and emailed back and forth and, and, and commented on uh, at very, very early stages in the design and it's all about creating relationships with the people that work alongside of you. For instance, if you're an architect, having a good relationship with a builder or several builders, having a good relationship with an engineer uh, uh, creates a bit of an ecosystem. And, and that ecosystem, you know, uh, obviously gets builders to recommend architects and, and engineers to recommend builders and architects. So I think that's a solution that, that would probably solve the majority of the issues in the industry. What do you think, Drew? Yeah, look, for me, there is an us versus them mentality that is still very prevalent in the design and construction industry. We're always looking for someone else to blame, I find, uh, especially when you, when you are speaking to uh, architects, designers or builders who are kind of might, might be going through a period of struggling uh, to, to get customers or getting hit through error or oversight and those kinds of things. And if we work better together, 
um, earlier in in the in the actual design and construction uh, of a project, then you, you, for me it's just a no brainer. It, it gets rid of the usness of them. It gets rid of this blame game. It it means that we understand the difficulties that each person or stakeholder is going to face, and that people with the relevant kind of uh, knowledge can start to have an input earlier on, and that's only a benefit. I think some some architects don't want the builder to be involved because they they are concerned about the integrity of the project. Uh, but you can work with people and still maintain the integrity of a project, and vice versa. The builder is like, I'm just going to get, you know, I'm going to get a 50 page 2D drawing set, and I'm now going to have to quote, and it's going to take me, you know, 90 hours plus to do this quote if I'm going to do it properly. Uh, because I'm going from one page to the next, to the next, to the next. And in the end, I just end up putting all those con- contingencies on there. And mm. this is one of the things I've, I think I've learned since coming and, and joining Ruby Sketches from the design or architectural point of view, looking at what it would take to, to actually fully quote a job. And I think it's a really good exercise to sit there in front of 2D drawings and say, imagine if I was going to do that or if even just, I'm going to try and remodel this. I'm going to create a new 3D drawing just following those plans. How long is it going to take? And in actual fact, that's the longest time is deciphering the plans, even when you have a, a really good skill set. Correct. Yep. Look, I mean, you, I, I, it's a, it's a, it's the old saying, a picture tells a thousand words. Well, I guess a 2D drawing is a picture. However, if you've got the third dimension, it tells a million. It's, it's a thousand cubed. Uh, I... I I'm so confident that that one model uh, that's that's set up correctly, uh, that has structured views, it has uh, elevations, it has shadows, tells more, so much more than what you can get out of a set of of, of, of 2D documents. And the more industry requires more information and when it's documented on a set of flat piece of paper, the more sets of plans that we have in a set uh, and before we know it, you forget what was on plan number one because you're at number forty-seven. Uh, you know, it, it's it's flawed. It, it's a it's a recipe for disaster. And uh, you know what? I think that that everyone here would probably have, have realised that till now. You know, in a project home company or a volume builder, sure you can have a set of plans that are seven or eight deep. However, on a custom build, and you've got detailing and special connections and. You know, so much information going on there. It's it's unrealistic to think that we could get a, a document set out in less than 14 drawings. And uh, it's unrealistic to think that somebody should do that for free. Um, another main reason why that I got involved in creating the software was my company itself was hemorrhaging money by doing quotes. You know, as I said, the better I got at quoting manually and using Excel spreadsheets and rules and square metres, the, the, the best case scenario I could get a, a simple three-bedroom house out the door that was custom would be 20 hours. That's half a week's work. And then if we think that, okay, well, there's potentially four or five builders quoting that job, and some might be just taking us out in the dark and working on square metre area, we're, we're potentially losing 100 hours of industry's time that's unpaid, uh, and it, it's not a good method, in my opinion. Once an architect or a designer is using PlusBag and exporting a bill of quantities, they have no understanding of how much time that actually saves the builder uh, or the estimator. Uh, it's how much time it saves the industry and how much, you know, down the track cross specification 
uh, reduction that is as well. So, yeah, I think there's a lot in that. Yeah, look, later on in the series, we will be talking to a few builders that uh, have had a lot of success with Prospect. And uh, one of the big things that I hear from builders uh, specifically is this value engineering. So the structural engineer is still essentially using a 2D plan set, exactly like what the vast majority of architects and designers are outputting. And structure is so complicated and and when you get to site, so many builders suffer because there's obviously problems with the with the structural set or there might be a clash, the air conditioning ducts clashes with the steel and that hasn't been accommodated for. Because in, in my opinion, I would hate to try and have that all in my head and try and understand what's going to clash and what's not. So is that's just is that something that you faced when you were building? Uh, and how did you overcome that? And that's that? something well, that's something all the way around the world, and and the main issue that I saw uh, that I saw was uh, you know in America, England was that the building had actually been designed quite well, and uh, the builder had an understanding and, and pictured it in his head, and and uh, had put the joists and, and everything in according to what was drawn. <clears throat> but when you stick a, a three hundred mil or twelve inch air conditioning duct through, and you need to get it to every room. That throws the cat amongst the pigeons really, really quickly. Uh, and in all of my drawings, once before I go and put, you know, structure or trusses or, or joists in there, I'll actually, you know, if that house is to be air conditioned, I'll run my ducts and then I'll try and figure out how I can get those joists to work uh, for the least amount of cost. So value engineering is imperative to reduce the issues on site. Uh, I was actually in a game of golf with a bunch of builders the other day and, uh, and, and I sort of said, you know, what happens when you get held up? And these are volume builders. That, now, this hasn't been confirmed by me, but, you know, this guy knew what he was talking about. He said that every week a house is in construction in a project home is $750 worth of cost, which means if you run an air conditioning duct through the joist the wrong way and that has to go back to an engineer and by the time it gets back to site, there's potentially... $1,400 on a house that really might only have $5,000 worth of profit in it. Uh, so, you know, you can lose a lot of profit very, yeah. very quickly by not figuring out the end game uh, and and the total end game. I'm not just talking about choice direction and trusses. I'm talking about, you know, what's required to complete this project. 100%. Uh, I think if we have better relationships and everyone can work together better, and that's the entire team. So, you know, the architect designer, the structural engineers, the estimator or the quantity surveyor, whoever it may be, the builder or contractor, the trades, then we're mitigating error, we're working better together, everyone's communicating, and what that does is means that it means that we avoid these costs, which eventually either comes out of the builder's profit or the architect's or even just hits the customer. But all of these things reflect the profession. And if you can cut that out, then everyone's going to be more successful, more profitable, and we're going to avoid all of those kind of problems, right? Sure. Uh, look, I mean, not only that, you probably remember this. We, we remember we did that uh, uh, project for the largest construction company down in Victoria, and we did their concrete slab, and they said that our estimate was wrong? Yeah. Seven cubic metres. <laughs> so, guys, uh, audience, this is uh, uh, an interesting thing. So, a builder... I, we won't mention who it was, had actually done a, a simple four-bedroom project home. Uh, and they asked us to, to do an estimate for them so they could check cost versus actual. And uh, when we did the, the slab, it was a waffle pod slab, 
And uh, we did it, and they said, well, guys, you were way out of the concrete estimate, you know, to the tune of seven cubic metres, which is, uh, you know, probably uh, around about $2,100 in concrete alone. So we checked and triple checked and, and quadruple checked and then sent it back to the builders and said, look, we're, we're sorry, but we're right. Um, it turns out that their concrete had been overcharging them seven cube every job and they hadn't just built 10 of these things. They'd built, you know, hundreds of these homes. Uh, and the builder was oblivious uh, because they took the word of the, the, the subcontractor. Obviously, the subcontractor was rubbing his hands together. Uh, needless to say, no doubt he doesn't work there anymore. But it's just another good example of you know how a three D model can can uh, can can just you know save money. Um, you know, it probably doesn't have a great deal to do with the architect. I think it's a building estimating issue. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've seen and I've seen and I've heard that a lot of times. Yeah, we, we're going to uh, go on to the last question, then we're going to wrap it up. So. But for me, I couldn't even imagine trying to do an estimate from just paper and spreadsheets and all those kinds of things because, you know, I've, I've obviously spoken now with thousands of builders and estimators and we have our uh, people in our team who used to be estimators, et cetera. And it's obvious that you can't do it all in one hit. You're going to walk away. Uh, so then it just means that you're triple checking. You can't see what you've missed. But for me, what I love is if I'm not from that profession is that I know what's on screen. If it's there and it's visually been represented in the 3D model, I know I haven't missed it. So my estimate's going to be right. And if I have missed it, it's going to be pretty obvious when you start auditing the the model and seeing what you've allowed for and what you haven't. So I think that's something that's pretty cool. But what what I am going to ask you is, uh, as the final question, uh, the other thing that we hear often is how do you market or how do you sell? But more importantly... On top of that, you might be doing all the right things, but how do you identify time wasters? How do you identify the right kind of customers that you want to work with? And I think it's a very valid question to ask you because obviously as the design and build firm, you're getting both. You're getting people that are coming for the design and you're obviously getting people that are going for the actual built um, aspect of it too. So what's your thoughts on that? Was there anything that you did or is there any advice you give to people now, even our customers that are asking that question? Well, it's a very personal thing. However, I think that I had it as close to nailed as, as I've heard any other design build firm or builder or architect had got. Uh, I only ever gave a client one hour for free. And in that hour, it wasn't about me, well, number one, is it was about me understanding what the client wanted and, and also looking at their personality and you know, if it's a husband and wife, how they talk to each other and, uh, you know, right down to how clean they keep their house was, was definitely something that would raise flags uh, into me thinking whether I want to build for them. And that might sound slightly arrogant, but it's true. Uh, but what I used to do is I used to, uh, Mr. and Mr. Smith may call and, and they'd give me an address and, and say, you know, we want you to come out and, uh, and have a look at this project that we have in mind. And uh, being a designer and a builder, it was some customers found it a little confronting that I was actually saying, well, how much do you have to spend on this project? You know, what have you got in mind? Due to experience, I understood that, and I had, I had a lot of people, I'm sure this happens to everyone, that, that had very unrealistic ideas on what they could achieve for what kind of money. And I can't really blame the client for that. They're not builders, they're not designers. Uh, so... 
I used to go along there with a previous project and I would always take my 3D model of the previous projects. I would show them what they're going to get for their money. Uh, I would say, okay, I would talk to them roughly about what they had in mind and, and get an understanding, you know, whether they needed three or four bedrooms and very basic information. I actually, you know, later on in life started getting to fill in a spreadsheet that I had prepared and I used that spreadsheet to, to create my um, plans uh, on site. But, but I guess the moral of the story was I'd go there, I'd figure out who the client was, I'd figure out whether they had the money to do it, whether they were realistic, whether they were kind of people that would get on with me um, because everyone has different personality types. Uh, and once I figured that out, I would show them, you know, what I offer. I'd show them a 3D model, I'd walk them through, I'd even show them shadows and how they would receive their project uh, virtually before we'd actually go ahead and do it. And I was getting, uh, you know, a strike rate of 70% of those jobs. One thing that I did do before I ever went back was I said, well, see this 3D model, this is what I will be delivering to you at, at concept stage. Um, so you'll get to have this 3D model and get to look around this 3D model. However, you have to pay. And up front, they had to pay 50% deposit. And if it was a small, really easy job, it might be $1,500 to, to create the 3D model. Uh, and if it was a large project, it might be 10 grand to create the 3D model. Uh, however, it was something that the client had that they could use if I didn't build their job to, to move forward. But one of the real benefits was that it kicked the tie kickers straight out the door because they had to actually reach into their pocket and give me money up front before I started, uh, which essentially meant if they're a tie kicker, they're never going to give you that money. So I filtered 95% of tie kickers there. If they were a tie kicker after they paid the first deposit, I still wasn't behind, which enabled me to go and talk with professionals to, to figure out the best way to build this job. And, uh, and i got to say that's the best method of actually getting paid to do a quote because once you've mocked up a 3D model, you know now how many bricks are in it, how many pieces of timber or lumber or wood, uh, you know how much roof tiles or how much fascia and gutter, how many windows are in this project. And you could also, you know, instead of getting a contour survey done initially, you can use, you know, Google Maps or, you know, uh, you can get a rough idea of contour. So you could also say, well, you know what, I think before we get this out of the ground, it's going to be X amount of dollars. Customers appreciate that form of communication. You can actually just tell them why what they've asked for isn't or isn't as efficient as it could be, and you can give them suggestions based on that concept model. Uh, I, I really believe that that is the solution uh, to a better design uh, and a better build. You know, and in some of these projects, I was going up with, you know, architects who were much better designers than I was. However, I was winning the, the, the job regardless because I was a better communicator, and uh, and I think I, I put that down to, to the fact, the way that I was delivering uh, my, my plans and, and it was in a way that a customer understood. So yeah, I think that's, and, if, and I think if other people can follow that that um, that system, I think that they'll see very similar benefits. It came down to the point where my company was getting so much money that all I was doing was just going and saying, well, if it's not within 10 kilometres from my uh, office, I'm not going to build it because I didn't want to travel all the way around <laughs> city in traffic. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds uh, uh, unrealistic, but it's true. Communication is the key. I do think that everything that we do should be working for us in multiple ways, and that's what I love about a 3D model. It's, it becomes a, a marketing and a sales tool if it's, if it's used properly. I also think that you've hit the nail on the head. I don't think that anyone in the industry, uh, whether you're from the design or the construction, 
uh, aspect of it should be doing anything for free or fee bidding or doing anything like that. We, we need to get paid for uh, our work and making sure that understanding the customer point, even commit to a, a very small step uh, in, with money, then you typically know that they're not the kind of person that you should probably be wasting time with. So, yeah. Andrew, I want to thank you for coming along and kickstarting these conversations. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited about our next round or whoever's going to come next, and I hope that our listeners continue to join us. Yeah, look, it'd be good to, to read the feedback from from all the listeners, and, uh, you know, I, I don't get everything right. Uh, just ask my wife, and, uh, and I'm sure, Drew, you make similar mistakes, so it'd be good to hear from uh, the attendees. Yeah. Uh, and, and see what their thoughts are because it, it strikes up an interesting conversation that I think can only be beneficial to the industry as a whole. Well, unfortunately, that's the end of another episode of the Architects are from Mars, Builders are from Venus podcast. If you would like to take part, don't hesitate to reach out. But before we go, I would also like to thank our gold sponsors. Builders Profits provides coaching and training to the building industry no matter where you live in the world. Dinsel is a lightweight, stay-in-place formwork system, which when filled with concrete produces a load-bearing, fire-resistant structural element. And Stramit is a leading Australian manufacturer of raw-formed steel building products. See you next time.